G'day. Thanks for downloading the show. Osha here. This is our last episode, our last new episode for 2021. And I wanted to thank you for listening to the ads that we play. Because when we play ads, we get to pay the hardworking people that make this show. Andy and Rachel and Bree and Toehider and this week, Daryl. So if you have heard an ad this year, thank you. You've helped us keep the lights on. So you might hear one right now. And if you do, thanks. If you don't, we're going to hear something rad from Ben. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Not every song is going to be a Catch My Disease or a Cigarettes Will Kill You or even a Born For This Bullshit that are like single type songs, you know. But there is going to be someone. There is going to be a group of people. Sometimes you need to connect to smaller groups. And that's part of how you also share your artistic vision too. So so I guess that's a long way of saying that like, I think there is both consideration of how I can communicate and the desire to but also the trust that if it's coming out of me, maybe there's there's something of interest there. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. Thanks for downloading the show. Uh, This is a podcast called Better Than Yesterday. It does what it says on the box since 2013. I've been having conversations with people from all walks of life, people from all over the world, people from all industries and areas of expertise, and every one of those conversations is guaranteed to help you make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show will do just that. I'm here three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And Mondays and Wednesdays here with the guest, Fridays here with you. We're about to go into our summer hiatus, so there's going to be a few best of episodes coming your way, but we have one final brand new show to get to you today because I didn't want to leave you in this Christmas week without a new ep. And I couldn't be more happy than to say that it is today with Ben Lee. Ben Lee is truly one of Australia's unique artists, unique voices, 
not only his musical voice, but also his his public voice, what he has to say, how he uh, speaks openly about certain things. And I think that what I admire most about Ben is how he will quite publicly go, oh, I think I got that wrong. Yeah, hang on, I thought that was, no, nah, no. Nah. And I say it all the time in the show, you can't be what you can't see. And I really admire that about Ben. Like, he does throw himself into things. And if it doesn't work out, he is not has no problem at all going, you know what? I don't know if I feel the same way about that anymore. Maybe it wasn't. No, I don't think I'm into that. And that's incredible. And we talk a lot about that in this conversation. And if anything, I hope you get out of this is that it's okay to change your mind. That's really, I guess, the overarching message of this of this conversation today. But Ben is fantastic. He's a very funny man. He's been in the public eye since he was 14 when he got essentially discovered by the Beastie Boys. Next thing you know, he's touring America and he's hanging with famous people. You know, now he's, you know, he's living in LA and he's got dogs and he's got a wife and two kids and having a fantastic time. He's written so many hooky, hooky pop songs that you know and is about to release his 20th album. It's called I'm Fun. It features all kinds of special guests, including Zoe Deschanel, Christian Lee Houston, Money Mark from the Beastie Boys, Megan Washington, Eric D. Johnson, so many people. The album comes out in June next year, but his first single is called Born For This Bullshit. Just pop in Ben Lee into your music service and you'll find Born For This Bullshit there. Great song. He knows how to write a hook. Knows how to write a pop hook. He's a very clever man. If you've never really entertained who Ben Lee is, I really hope you dig this because I'm so thrilled that I finally get the chance to have this conversation publicly because I've known Ben for quite a while and we've had plenty of chats over the years, both on camera and off. This conversation was, I just, I love engaging a mind like Ben's. He's just a thrilling human being to talk to and he's got a fantastic view of the world. The album is called I'm Fun. The single's called Born for This Bullshit. And this is me and Ben Lee and his dogs for a brief period of time (laughs) having a conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Here we are, mate. (sighs) Getting into it. My wife says to say hi. She... She always sees you down at the park when you're walking those dogs, but she never comes over. <laughs> she says the same. Well, she did. Well, we're in LA now, so um, ah. so yeah, we we had a long centennial park stint of the uh, of dog walking, especially through lockdown. Yeah, so you moved back. Well, we're not really looking at it as like I think permanency in the whole concept has gotten very amorphous. Yeah, twenty twenty onwards, you know. So I think. It's like gender location, you know what I mean? It can be non-binary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I understand. I, I totally understand why you you would go back. You were there for a long time. I've got a brother now who lives there with his husband, and they live in Detroit. He's super successful. He'll retire there. Honestly, I can never see myself moving back. I spent ten years there, but it's just yeah. I didn't have, and I'm sure you you do, but I didn't have enough social insulation from the bananasness of what it is to face the realities of day-to-day life in America. I didn't have enough people around me to go to see, oh, it's not all that. Here's some more people who are actually okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's social and it's creative, but it's also just sort of feeling like you're creatively tapped in here, I think is part of it too. Cause it's like, 
the cutthroat sort of rigors of just the mechanisms of show business are one part of it, but then there's the sort of just the dynamic creativity and that's where I think the real treasure is, you know? Without a doubt. Yeah, it's fun to... Uh, remix a TikTok video as a collaboration, but getting in the same room as someone, like that's, yeah, yeah. you know. It's just weird, man, because it's like undoubtedly to me the quality of life in Australia is better between the, you know, the safety net of having socialised medicine and Australia's got its problems, but I mean, it's got many problems, but it, it is a relatively stable society, yeah. relatively. Yeah. And I think one of the realities of America is that the kinds of things that make it creatively dynamic are the same kind of things that make it politically unstable, which is an obsession with loudness and ambition and splashiness and showiness. And in some ways in creative industries, that can actually be really useful because it fosters a space where people chase their dreams and set big goals for themselves and stuff. But it's not a great ethos for like running a country. <laughs> you know? you're, uh, you're right. And I heard that I spent a, an amount of time in the Middle East in my life uh, in a previous relationship. I've spent a fair bit of time in Israel and I, I was speaking to someone there. And I was asking, this is in the mid 2000s. I'm like, how is this tiny country, the country with the second most companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange outside of America? There's four or five million people here. And they Hmm. kind of explained to me exactly what you're saying. It's like, well, yes, there's crisis all through the country and at every point in our society, but it's in those crisis points that extraordinary opportunity can take place. And I don't know if I've got the stomach to to live with that amount of uh, uncertainty and crisis, but I totally understand what you're saying and that American thing where success, uh, it's the thing that blew my mind when I moved there was success is not only a currency, but the potential of success is like an IPO, like invest now, get in now, get on the ground floor because in 18 months we go to the moon. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, I was joking about, okay, yeah, it's non-binary, like my relationship to Australia and America. But as I get older, I genuinely think perhaps I don't have to pit these sides of myself against of course, each other. Of course. Perhaps there is a, a more mature lens, yeah. particularly with kids and everything, where you go, I want certain values of both places. I think Mm. it's healthy for um, the kids to be exposed to different ways of thinking. And, and, you know, for me, it was also different with music where when you started like in the nineties or in the eighties or something, the odds of getting discovered and getting to tour America and Europe without, because there was no internet it it was just, unless you got there in person, it was just never going to happen. Now it's very different. Like you look at like, whether it's like Tame Impala or Amel and the Sniffers or all these people who, because yeah. of the internet, they've got international careers, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it's all kind of changing. But for me, it's like there is a amazing creative thing that happens in LA yeah. that I've always loved. And I love that there's this like equalizing thing about show business, that whether you're like an extra in TV shows or you're pitching your own TV shows or you're a musician or you're a whatever you're doing, it's like we're all in show business. 
And I kind of like that show business is a business and it's a thing and it's an industry town. It's like being in, you know, whatever, mining in Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. It's like I like that it's like an industry town. I, uh, yeah. I did like that about it. It was easy to get things going because people always had their ear out for, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, you should meet my friend. Yeah, that, yeah. Then it's boom, serendipity was just everywhere. And um, if there was one thing that I learned about, certainly with people who, as someone who lived there and you'd no doubt know this, November to February was always awesome because there was heaps of people during pilot season. Then they'd all go, you know, right. and go back on their shows and neighbours and home and aways and all that. I remember something, I was like, oh, and someone said, yeah, it's show business, not show friends. I'm like, oh, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking business, man. <laughs> like, that's what we're, what we're here for. I'm so happy to see you, man. And honestly, like, it was just the fucking best to have you on The Masked Singer. I can't tell you how much I love <laughs> I love doing that show. And I know you'll know what I'm talking about when I say this. Like, I've, I've been working and gratefully working in television for 23 years now and broadcasting since 94. So I'm very grateful to have my career. There is nothing I've ever worked on that is so completely meaningless, <laughs> but yet still so full of joy. There's no prize. No one wins anything. There's no cash. There's... There's nothing. It's just the joy of not knowing and then discovering. It's this fucking perfect format. And you would understand in television, I know everything. If I'm hosting, I know everything. I know which cameras where, I know where we're cutting, I know what's this, I know when the pyro is going to go off, I know who's going to stand where, what dance moves going to look like. I know everything. This job, I know nothing. And it's it's I'm like, oh, like it's bananas to be on camera not knowing. It's really weird. That is so weird. And I think, and also then you add the coat. So there was the security level and then there was, it was the beginning of the lockdown. Yeah. So you add in the isolation and the COVID restrictions and all of that. And yeah, it was one of the stranger experiences I've had. And you've in done some strange shit, Benley. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I liked about it is how, um, I don't know if I'd call it lack of meaning because I do think entertainment on the most sensual level of just getting a giggle or a, a moment of fascination, there's meaning in that oh, too. Yeah. It may not be the ultimate. That's all it was. It was It was just for joy. The thing was just for joy. There was yeah. nothing else but joy. It was just the joy totally. of discovery. That's it. That's the only thing about the show. And I, I love it. And I don't know if we got a chance to talk about this, but we've done three seasons now. And yeah. the wild thing, and you'd appreciate this because I've talked to a few people about this. As soon as it started happening, I let people know. I said, some fucking weird shit's happening, all right? So I don't know who anybody is. Right. No idea. Season one, I'm standing in the tunnel. It's the very first day of rehearsal. The first day in the studio. We're getting ready to go. And I, t I turn around behind me and there's uh, an eight-foot-tall wolf behind me. I'm like, okay, someone's there in a, in, a, in a wolf costume. That's interesting. All the dancers are there. We're there to practice our walk-on, right? It's the first time I've seen this costume. Like, okay, everybody ready in 10, 9, 8. Someone grabs my ass, like proper grabs my ass. And I thought, <laughs> is that the, one of the dancers? And I turn around and as soon as someone grabs my ass, I go, oh, fucking Milsey's here. And I turn around and I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> as soon as he touched me. I didn't know who he was. As soon as he touched me, I knew. Now, I couldn't see him. I couldn't smell him. Smell is another one. I picked another one by smell. Same season, two episodes later, the unicorn comes out. Uh, she reaches out, touches my finger. The moment our fingers touch, I'm like, oh, Denny's here. <laughs> and it happened with you. When you walk down on stage and you put your hand on my, you put your left hand on my right shoulder, I'm like, oh, Ben. 
And I don't know what that is, Ben, because I couldn't see you. I can't hear your voice very well. When I watch it back on TV and I hear it, I'm like, oh, fuck, that's Ben Lee. But that's not how I picked you when you touched me. Yeah. And I find that absolutely amazing. It's weird, you know, like um, the other night, my dog woke me up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh, I'm awake. I look at my phone. I was like, oh, I'll have a look at Instagram. And I go to a friend's Instagram story. It's like a, fr- a friend who our kids are also friends. And she had had an intruder arrested oh, God. trying to get into her house. And the police, this all happened, right? Right right as I checked, she'd put it up on her Instagram story. She's like, we're all safe, but this just happened. Whoa. Three in the morning. I go back to sleep and my daughter comes in and wakes me up. She goes, I just had the worst nightmare. I said, what? She's like, someone was trying to break into our house. And um, then the police came and arrested them. And she's very close with that family too. So it opened up this sort of conversation in our family about like, what are these types of things, you know? And I think that one of the most generous things we can do with ourselves is um, kind of just sit in awe of those moments without having to formulate any sort of ethos or dogma or belief system around them because they do seem to happen. I've had several of those moments in my life that you can't explain and you kind of could by, I guess, process of elimination. You know, they do those things where they're like, well, how many people are in Australia at that time? And, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. But I do think there are quote unquote sort of anomalies that occur to do with the human mind and our perception and, I kind of love that I don't understand them and I don't put any pressure on myself to. And what I noticed through going through a lot of like spiritual searching and that was people love to put explanations on things. Yeah, They love to tell you they know what the truth is and why things happen. Mm. And I just don't believe that anyone really knows why any of that kind of stuff happens. I love it when it happens. And wildly, it happens in my life when I'm in a very expensive suit that I'll wear only once under a shower of pyrotechnics surrounded by dancers. <laughs> and for the idea that someone says, oh, you have to you know, do a process of elimination of how many people are in Australia at the time, who could possibly be here? I'm thinking about don't stand here because I would explode if I'm in the wrong spot. You know, I'm thinking about pyro yeah. cues and where the cameras are. I'm not thinking about anything. Totally. And I love that it, it's undeniable. And I'm a science guy, Ben. I'm, yeah. I believe that uh, part of our brains how we are wired allows us to have these uh, fundamentally good feeling spiritual experiences. Like that's a part of who we are. It's in our actual makeup and we can get into that, how the design of our brain has created our belief systems, however they look out. But I'm I'm a science guy and I don't believe there's some sort of, in Nick Cave's words, interventionist God. And I don't believe, I just, this does happen though. How it happens, I'm with you. I'm like, Wow, that fuck it happens. There's no denying that it happens. Yeah, you know, I just see it as like it's science that we haven't figured For out precisely. yet. I mean, it's like there, there, there is going to be some answer to it. But I've had things like before my dad died, like the day he went into the hospital, I was living in New York and I didn't know anything had happened and I woke up in the middle of the night and I said out loud, I was really stressed and I said out loud, my dad's going to die soon. And as soon as I said that, I felt totally relaxed and went back to sleep. And then a couple hours later, my sister called and said, dad's gone into hospital. There's a tear in his aorta. And this is what's interesting about these moments of perception, whether they're, however you perceive them, whether they're supernatural or just, they're kind of expansive. They make you think differently for a moment. 
I then went into the next couple of months of action, which required action was required. I went back to Australia, and I, but I looked at it as I'm going to spend some special time with my dad because I'd had this feeling that I couldn't prove and didn't even believe necessarily, but I was like, huh, this weird thing where I kind of had this feeling my dad's going to die soon. So I just went into those conversations kind of differently. And when my dad did die a couple months later, I felt a little bit emotionally prepared. So I think those things are interesting too, if they do allow you to kind of step outside your routine thinking and start considering just other approaches to moments, you know? We can find ourselves in patterns of behaviour where we don't actually make choices through the day easily, without a doubt. We can think about things the way we've always thought about things if we never challenge them. And then, you know, when, if you're not happy with where you are, like if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. So if you're not happy with where you are, as you know, as you're saying, it's important to kind of zoom out a bit and go, hang on, something else there. There does seem to be kind of like emotional invitations to step up our ways of thinking at different points like that, where Mm. it's funny because I I think of that in terms of like with a lizard, if you chop its tail off and it grows back, or if you cut your skin and you can see it heal, it scabs over and it heals. Like nature does kind of want to heal. It does make attempts at healing. And I look at some of these moments as they're just like little moments of like invitations to step into healing without getting to believing there's sort of some puppet master <laughs> guiding the the show. It's more just, it's nature happening. Yeah. It, it wants to get better, basically, you know? The, sorry, yeah, sorry. The, no, don't no, be sorry at all. Like the feeling of wanting a puppet master to be guiding the show, taking a responsibility of the outcome of everything off your own shoulders and the uh, the feeling of uncertainty, like want, wanting someone to be in control is a human feeling because avoiding uncertainty is yeah. a human feeling. And that does lead us into how religion came about, I guess. You know, someone's got to be in charge of this. Oh, everything's going to be fine. Oh, great. It's not on me. Phew. There's a big man in the sky or a big woman in the, in the grounds yeah. or there's 5,000 different deities, whichever, you know, <laughs> whoever you choose. You know, then there's also a mysterious person on Facebook who's, who's going to tell us how it's all going to unfold. Like the idea that we don't have to deal with our own uncertainty that's a part of who, what makes us up. And this, it's interesting that we, we're born like that. We kind of look for someone else. Who's got the wheel? Who's got the wheel? Who's got the wheel? Because I don't want the wheel. It's uncomfortable if I know I've got the wheel. Someone else has got it, even if that person is talking about some pretty scary shit. You know, it's fasc- I think it's fascinating. Totally. I was, yeah, I was raised to be like a good student, um, even though I struggled with um, authority and everything in school. I think I was just raised to believe that if you want to learn something, there is a teacher who can teach you how to do it and you should respect them because they have more experience and they know more. And so I, I used to always put myself at the instruction or at the mercy of people who I perceive to be in that arena, a higher power. So if it was a driving teacher, whoever, you know, I'd, a, a teacher teaching me how to ski or something, I would try and do exactly what they said because I thought my odds of success were better. What's interesting is if you work in the arts, you know, it's a process of realizing, but that actually no one's got perfect advice for you. I heard um, something I loved, the, the guy who created Modern Family, I just heard him on a podcast once and he said, I think of 
success in show business is like hacking your way through a jungle with a machete. And every time you clear some space, it closes behind you so no one can follow. And I really believe that. There's no path that you could follow that anyone else has walked. So I think part of growing up as an artist is, yes, respecting people who have who know things and there's certainly technical things you can learn, but really honoring that you are in your own process and whatever genius is going to spring forth from you is not going to be like anything that's come out of anybody else. It's something that has to be honored in its own unique way. Your process clearly works. There's certainly artists that have been active for as long as you have that have a a third uh, or less of the output that you have. Would I be right in thinking that you don't go, all right, here we go, another album, let's make it happen, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write it right now, or do you just go, whatever comes out of me, I trust it'll be the right thing right now, so I'll just make it? I think a bit of both. I definitely want to communicate. I mean, I always, I grew up like admiring, one of my favourite songwriters is this guy, Jonathan Richman, who not a lot of people know, and if they know him, they know him as being the sort of narrator of There's Something About Mary, but he's an amazing songwriter and he was like a punk who started playing kids' music and it's such an amazing arc his his creativity had. But what I loved about people like that was that you didn't need to know anything to go to the concert and have a transcendent experience. Like I always believed that for me, part of what makes music good is that it communicates on like a first time level. Like I would love, if I did a gig, I would hope if you came with three generations, if you came with your parents or your partner's parents and with your kid and, you know, you'd or there'd be something for all of you. It's not just you have to know all the songs and the lyrics and you know what I mean? You know, that's a certain type of experience where people go to sort of regurgitate their listening experience at home. So that being said, like, I believe that communication is really important. To me, it is. And I want it to work. But I also trust that, well, I had this interesting, I worked on this project once with, um, it was something for Playtone, you know, which is Tom Hanks's production company. Wow. And the guy who, um, it was like a little web series thing. I was doing the music for it. The guy who was sort of the active EP on it was this guy, Gary Getzman, who interestingly, I just found out, you know, Licorice Pizza, the new P.T. Anderson movie? Uh, I do now. I don't know if you heard about that. That's kind of with the girl from Hiem is the lead. In oh, it I and, love that um, band so much. Philip Seymour Hoffman's daughter, I mean, sorry, son is in it too. Wow. Um, but anyway, that's apparently the story of this guy, Gary Getzman. It's his childhood experience in LA. Right. But, but anyway, but I said to him, I asked him a question about their company and I said, you make such broad work, you know, they service a kind of mainstream sensibility about consumption of movies and TV. And I was like, how do you develop things if you're thinking it has to be like so broad every time? He said, we don't think like that. We just trust that our sensibility is innately sort of populist. If we like things, we know there's going to be other people that like them. And I'm a, that's the side of it where there's trust for me that I now know that like, it's not going to be as big every time. Not every song is going to be a catch my disease or a cigarettes will kill you, or even a born for this bullshit that are like single type songs, you know, but there is going to be someone, there is going to be a group of people and it's worth, sometimes you need to connect to smaller groups 
And that's part of how you also share your artistic vision too. So, so I guess that's a long way of saying that like, I think there is both consideration of how I can communicate and the desire to, but also the trust that if it's coming out of me, maybe there's, there's something of interest there. Clearly there's a through line in, in all of your work, Ben. I really do get the feeling that when I, when I listen to your music over the, over the years, it's, there's a curiosity and there's an acceptance of, wow, okay, well, here we are. All right. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of the feeling I get of, uh, well, this is interesting. What's that about? And then, yes. uh, oh, okay. Well, if that's what it is, then okay. <laughs> that's cool, man. I like that way of saying it. You know what? It's a little bit like, um, I remember Ben Fold saying to me that part of his sort of archetype was Kermit sitting on a log. Oh, right. Yes. And that like the craziness sense. of the world <laughs> is happening. And he's just sort of like, I'm singing my song. Do, 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 And I do think I have some of that too. It's the, it's the ability to be a witness to your own life and to narrate that without an attachment to how things are going to turn out. I think that does make kind of art sort of compelling where you realize that the protagonist is on an adventure and it may go in their favor. It may not. They have desires, they have needs, they have fears. But they're going to tell you what it's like there and they're hopeful and they're trying to build courage and they're going through it. And that to me, it's a, it's a subtle, it's interesting because a lot of music is very melodramatic and my music is actually not that melodramatic. Sometimes it's even not that emotional. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's more like I'm just sharing my thoughts about a moment. And I think in some ways that's a little bit more subtle and not as rewarded instantly in our community, in our culture, where emotional histrionics and melodrama are, you know, it's like the Trump thing or something. It's like, it's like we want people loud and, and brassy and sort of knowing exactly what they're about and branding themselves perfectly mm. and all of that. And my whole thing's always been clumsier and it's always been about, it's always been about being in a process and being open with that and having fun with it. You've always struck me as a very curious person. Were you that as a kid? Is that the sort of thing that got you into trouble? Well, I, I always thought that I could be interested in anything if the person telling me about it was interesting. Um, so I never limited my interests. And that was kind of helpful because that that's curiosity, I guess. that, And I see that in my daughter too, that they ask her, you know, what are your interests? What's your favorite subject? She's like, anyone with a good teacher? Yeah, um, far out. That's the answer. My God, my eldest, yeah, just, she yeah. just finished high school. My eldest just finished high school. I'm like, you're fucking right, mate. That's it. Yeah. I think also just like having a curious mind. I see from my mom, you know, she's 80, but she's like a 50-year-old. Like my mom is very vibrant and engaged in life. And I think a lot of it's because of her curiosity in people and in things, in places, in processes. And it it really does... You know, it's that childlike sense of wonder. Mm. It really does keep your life kind of vibrant and keeps you engaged. When did that curiosity start to expand into, I guess, spirituality? You've been quite public about your experiences and your explorations there. Well, I mean, because I grew up Jewish and went to a Jewish school, I was never one of the kids that was going to just like, because I am who I am, if I have to sit in a class with a rabbi teaching me about the Torah... 
I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to debate and I'm going to struggle with, you know, it's like, this is what we're dealing with. This is where we are. I'm in a Jewish day school. Like, let me grapple with it a bit, you know, which is actually a very Jewish quality, you know, it's a, but because it was presented to me, like we're raising our daughter, I would say if our family has a religion, it's the creativity, creativity and kindness to people. I mean, that is really, but, but I think of being an artist as almost like a type of religion because you do have guidance that you have to follow. It's just self-determined and it doesn't have a moral quality to it, except that hopefully it comes with the belief that it's possible to add to the world and to be a contributor and make your community better, you know? So it was like, yeah, it was like always there. And because if my parents hadn't sent me to a Jewish day school, I don't think I would have been confronted with it as much. But then I was like wrestling with this stuff about being in a Jewish community. And naturally that led to me going, well, what do all the others have to offer? And how do they all compare against each other? And how could you possibly raise a kid to believe that this book is the absolute truth and the other groups around the corner that also say their ones are the absolute truth, oh, they're a bit confused. Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. Like, it seemed extremely, like, uncompassionate and arrogant. I mean, it sounded really arrogant. And I was just like, I saw it as like, if I'm going to, if, I, if you're telling me that part of my duty in this world is to figure out what my relationship is to this thing called Judaism that I've been born into, that's going to involve testing it out against a whole bunch of other things <laughs> and seeing how it all stands up together. And I remember being in like a, in, you know, a Torah Bible class and um, I had already started reading like the beats and everything. So um, like psychedelic and mystical experience and like William Blake and, you know, all these different types of things like Allen Ginsberg's poetry and stuff. Like, I just remember thinking like, if there are experiences to be had that are like quote unquote mystical experiences, I want to have one of on my own. I'm not going to be the kind of person that's going to be content reading about someone else's one, which is basically what religious studies is. It's basically going like hearing someone's travel memoir and you'd be like, like, you know, in the castle when they come back and they're like, oh, and the the tables, they folded out from the back of the chairs, they came down and then they gave us chicken souvlaki. And we, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like that. It's like, that's what like all these texts are. They're just like everyone's descriptions of their holidays. Mm. And I was just like, that's not for me. Like I am a hands-on dude. And whether it's real, fake, something in between, something that means something I don't understand, I want to find out for myself. Where did you go first? It was sort of just like this ongoing thing. Like, I mean, I mean, I remember reading like Buddhism. I think, you know, Buddhism was sort of hip in the early 90s mm -hmm. and the Dalai Lama and everything. And, you know, I was signed by the Beastie Boys and I was friendly with Adam Yauch and he was a Tibetan Buddhist. And um, so there was a lot of reading about that. But also like the, um, like I said, the beats and their kind of like um, Dionysian hedonistic ecstasy. I also really like believed in that just intuitively that there was something in altered states and sexual openness. And um, there was something true in that. Because when I would hear people talk about like psychedelic journeys and sexual exploration, they sounded like much more mystical than the way I would hear religious people talking about their practices. So I sort of just look, looked through all kinds of things and had different experiences. And then when I went to New York, I started studying Taoism with this Qigong Chinese 
master um, and traditional Chinese medicine. And that led to me getting interested in things like the crop circles, not in the sense that like aliens made them, but in the sense of like anonymous sacred art. Like why is it that certain people would make beautiful things in a way that they didn't take the credit for them? And why were they connected? There would seem to be patterns and narratives being played out in a collective way between the formations that would come up each year. And again, I was not like an alien guy. I thought it was people, but I thought people are magical too. You know, like art is magical. And what happens when punk rock is created or when disco comes in or when Jimi Hendrix starts playing the guitar? That is a magical shift in narrative. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I think people make magical things. So so I was exploring that, and that, that led to Indian gurus and and psychedelics and Christian Gnosticism and all this stuff and death. And it was all based around this, like um, it was almost like gonzo journalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was all based around like throwing myself in, like you know that expression, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> Have you heard that before? No, tell me about that. Yeah, like if you think something's true or something claims to be true, test it. If it's the Buddha, you won't be able to kill him. So a lot of my practices in life or my journeys have been building things and destroying them with the belief that whatever's left after it's destroyed will be the thing that's actually true. And I found that to be a pretty good thing. I think a lot of relationships have suffered because of that. But that's also because to some degree, I think I've been willing to not continue lying to myself about certain things that, like, whenever you find community forming around faith or around belief, or it it involves shared delusion and you have to support each other. You have to, like, gaslight yourself and each other to keep believing things so that it's tidy. Whereas I can honestly say, like, for instance, in my, like, guru explorations or psychedelic explorations or things, there was a lot of um, manipulation and a lot of, I guess, disinformation and like turning people against themselves in a way in those types of constructs. But I also believe there was a lot of genuine mystical experience and you got to sort out for yourself. That's the world we live in. There's nothing pure. And you've got to decide for yourself, you know? I did struggle with that. There was a meditation teacher that I went to go and see. And I found it really helpful. And I found the the states I was able to appreciate when I was in those meditative states to be remarkable. I can't access those states now because of the medications that I'm on uh, to keep me mentally well. But, you know, that's another part of it. But I remember being in in the sessions with him and then going, man, look, if you stopped there, it'd be good because now we're into the part where you're indoctrinating the growth hacking part. Now you're in the part of like, you know, I'll get more enlightened if I tell other people about this. Now you're in the part where if part of my paycheck goes to you, then it's going to be even better for me because it's like, nah, please fucking stop before you get to the marketing because the marketing's built into the practice. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm fucking out, mate. I'm out. Yeah, I reckon there's no way to institutionalize spirituality and have it survive in any real way. As soon as there is a church or a temple or a a group or a community center or whatever you call it, as soon as you get that group, there's politics. Yeah. And I see it as like, this is um, the personal journey of, uh, these words are so, they're so melodramatic. I think the bigger thing is, 
what we call spirituality is really like the internal struggle for meaning, basically. And that is a very personal thing that I don't believe ultimately anyone can guide you through. I think we can, as brothers and sisters, like as comrades in the confusion of this universe, we can respect and support each other and be like, well, this is my experience. That's your experience. Oh, that's interesting. I learned something from that. But as soon as you have one person telling another how to do life, I just think it's bullshit. Like I just, I think that's where it's become, it's like you said, it's become marketing and it's become a brand and it's become, how do we, how do we bring more people in, you know? When I hear you speaking about living this yeah, exploration, but also not being afraid then to go, oh, actually, no, I'm done. And then being okay to talk about that. Like that's a that's an extraordinary modeling of behavior because I, I, I dare say there's plenty of people, whether it, whether it be, oh, this is the car I really want. Uh, and they get the car and they go, oh, it's fucked. There's this thing I hate about it. But they never tell anybody that, uh, it's, yeah. you know, but I've committed, I'm now the driver of this car or, you know, this is the house I bought or this is, you know, what I mean? Well, it's like, like Instagram. It's yeah. like you just show the best bits. <laughs> it become, But once it becomes a part, once you've kind of really kind of really signaled or telegraphed that it's a part of your identity, it's very hard to go back on it. You are someone who has, I mean, you know, getting ready for this interview, I've seen a number of occasions throughout your career and your life where you have forthrightly come out and said something and then maybe one or two or three years later there's an article where you quietly go, actually, that wasn't what I thought it was. And yeah. I'm here to tell you it wasn't whatever whatever it is you can you know what I'm talking about you are someone who's unafraid I, do. I think so often as humans we when we're caught out we want to double down or when we feel something's not right we want to double down because we feel our identity might be threatened climate denial is a, fuck, a classic case there's a bloke I work with I love him he's amazing at what he does but as more and more evidence shows up he just fucking doubles down even harder because it's such a part of his identity yeah but you've over, over time and time again you've gone. Actually, no, no, that was right. What would you say to people about about that process and what actually happens when you open up and go, eh, maybe it wasn't what I thought it was? I mean, the first thing is built into the question is the idea or the implication that to change is bad or wrong or dangerous and that you might get like kicked out of the tribe or I don't know what, like we have a lot of prejudices against evolution in a way. Coming from music, though, like, there's David Bowie. You know what I mean? Like, like in art, there's Salvador Dali who said, I reserve the right to contradict myself. I mean, I always liked that type of artist. Like, I wasn't that. There's a lot of artists, and I've had fascinating conversations with artists that I have diametrically opposed philosophies about how to do careers to, where they look at it, especially now, because the metrics are so precise, that you can see what your audience wants from you. And you can build a business delivering what your audience wants. But I am from another, I don't know if it's another era or just another way of looking at it, where I believe the artist leads the audience. The audience doesn't lead the artist. I went through a period in my life where like my passwords to everything, it's no longer, so I'm not not risking ID theft, but my password to everything was changes. Because I actually believed that change was the thing I was chasing. I wasn't chasing something stable. I was chasing something dynamic. So 
the kind of experience and why I resonated with sort of like spiritual parables and all those ideas was because they're essentially all about change. I mean, another way of saying change is that like death is coming. Like no matter how stable you think you are, death is a coming. <laughs> for you, for me, Wayne Coyne was yeah, right. So Wayne Coyne was right. Exactly. Everyone you know someday will die. Exactly. So I don't look at it in terms of, but this is something that I do realize is a little more unique. I mean, I remember sitting with like artists I love like and I respect, like Connor Obus. We were drinking one night and I was talking about change, how I just want to change. And he was like, who wants to change? <laughs> like, because he liked his life and he liked the, and you know, that's valid, but it's not how I see things. I see things in letting go. It's like, you know, Bob Dylan said, like, he not busy being born is busy dying. Like, that's my philosophy that like, if you think you know, you're going to get stuck in something. I'd much rather not know. And that's the great irony that I don't think, I think people are starting to realize about me because I can do a whole like bravado kind of thing and all that, but it's with the deepest sense of humility of actually admitting I know nothing about myself or what's going on with anything. And in that, you can find room to play and you can be like, yeah, I'm Australia's greatest songwriter or, you know, come at me. Uh, this is an epic hit. you got to enjoy it. Because you know it's nonsense because you don't know anything. So in that, it's like, there's freedom to, I was talking to Abby Chatfield about this, about how playing the villain gave her freedom. Because once you, if you find a certain role in which you can express that when you actually really don't know anything, you're suddenly very free. And I think a lot of actors find that with like really crazy roles and villains and stuff, that there's this liberation that comes with um, accepting that it's a role, I guess. So I don't really have any advice. I just build my life on the presumption that next week I, I should think differently than this week. I guess I want you to talk a bit about if you find out that you might've got it wrong, it's okay, right? Yeah, man. Well, it's like you fall to your knees. Like, like I've had like psychedelic experiences where I saw for the first time it, that certain relationships, like particularly in this world of like spirituality and mentors and gurus were like intensely, intensely sort of corrupt or unsatisfying in ways that I hadn't admitted. And it's horrifying. Even just in general with psychedelics, people have this idea about bad trips when what they really mean by a bad trip is you're going to see something uncomfortable. You're going to like face something that is like not nice. But I take a more Jungian approach that I don't think there are nightmares. There's no nightmares or good dreams. It's material. There's material in all of it, right? It's all just material for learning. And yes, when you look in the mirror in some experience or in a relationship where you get read the hard truth from someone you love too, that can be it too, you know? And someone's like, um... You know how you think you're really generous? You're actually intensely selfish. <laughs> like when someone you love tells you that, you know, you crumble. But what you can rebuild from that place of humility is immense. And there's a process, a shamanic process I've always loved called mystical death, 
Yeah. And it's about this exact thing that sham- shamans used to have, like as people were g- being initiated into shamanic practices, they'd often see themselves being torn limb from limb by demons and their bodies would be like destroyed and then rebuilt. And that is an, an allegory for what it's like to change. We are just going to take a quick break from my conversation with Ben because I would like to ask you a favour. If this show has brought you value through the year, if this is a show that you go, you know what, I've I've told someone about this podcast and they said, yeah, that's that was a good one, thank you. I would really appreciate it if you could repay that favour by liking the podcast, sharing the podcast, rating and reviewing the podcast where you can following or subscribing depending on whatever app you listen to that stuff really really helps us a lot and so does sharing the show if there's someone that you know that loves ben they might not have heard this conversation just hit share in the corner of your app and text it to him or put him on a dm or or share it to your instagram or your facebook or whatever that really really helps us it really helps the show it's one of the best things you can do for us so i would ask you to do that please if you ever want to get in touch with me it's super easy send us your email at gmail.com that's where you can find me i'm also on instagram I think I've just, I just today opened a new Better Than Yesterday Instagram page, but I'm probably going to have to launch that next year because, goodness me, we're all trying to pack it all in before Christmas Day and fuck me if I've got any chance, have any time to do anything while I'm remembering what to pack for our beach vacation. Anyway, uh, here's an ad break. There might be an ad break. There might not be an ad break. It's up to the algorithm and where you're listening and how you're listening. So if you hear an ad break, thank you again. If you don't hear an ad break, well, we'll have some more chats with Ben. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I've been involved with some pretty wild television moments in Australian history. Like the other night, we had the finale of The Bachelorette, the first ever bisexual First Nations Bachelorette Brooke, an incredible human being. She's an amazing woman. Yeah. And her best mate sat down on national television and rather than the, well, would you move to Melbourne or, well, do you fly FIFO? How's it going to work? She goes, whose country do you live on? They went, what? Yeah. Whose, whose country do you live on? And they both couldn't answer it. And then she said, well, who, what country is Brooke from? I said, well, they both couldn't answer it. Just those two questions, their reaction, that's the first time that question's been asked in that context on television. And it was fucking amazing. It was amazing. And suddenly I've had so many conversations with people going, I can't believe I didn't know until now. And I went and found out during the ad break and now I, now I know. So there was another moment on television I'm very, very grateful about, and they left it in the edit, which I'm thrilled for, is they 
you and I talked about ayahuasca during a, a primetime family yeah. TV show. I was so yeah, fucking yeah. stoked that we got to do that because I've seen the transformational effect it's had upon people whom I love and what they experience. I, I know it's something that you, uh, you know, you're very schooled in, but I, I don't know if we could talk a little bit about like. Yeah. Well, psychedelics in general, like when you're doing them right, you've never been more sober in your life. Right. That's the reality of it. I mean, I like to have fun and party and everything too, but at the end of the day, I'm like looking for insight, you know, and I do believe that these different types of molecules and medicines, like they can sober us up because I think day-to-day life, modern society, capitalism, it, it's all intoxicating. It's all intoxicating. Codependence, relationships, like we get intoxicated by other people's dreams for us. We get intoxicated by everything. And I, I think like, psychedelics, when they work. Now, the only problem is that they're an incredibly volatile tool. So (laughs) it's funny. I never recommend anyone does psychedelics because I think we don't need to recommend them to each other. There is a primal desire to learn from them and play with them that has existed since prehistoric times that they don't need marketing, that you can't get them out of your mind when you want to do them. And they are dangerous in the sense that, you know, the landscapes you have to navigate, the rules are not clear. You can get some information and you can implement it in a way that actually can make the problem worse. Like we have all these sides of ourselves in our minds, in our psyche. And when you amplify it with a psychedelic, you can be getting information from different sides of yourself and they have different, sometimes competing desires. You know, an example, this is a classic example. I just sort of love the story. Like this guy who was like a businessman, sort of like quite materialistic and everything. He did an ayahuasca ceremony and he got the instruction to give away his BMW. And um, he came out of the ceremony and he gave the keys to like the first person he saw. And in his state, he believed he was taking some like huge act of renunciation, but it was performative, right? And there was very little within that action. He could afford to buy another car. And there was very little in that action that actually asked him to challenge his relationship to his material possessions. That was a longer process that would need to unfold over time as he contemplated that experience in the weeks that followed. But this whole science is like, it's not really well charted. So there are some therapists who, you know, help people with it and stuff, but it's like the Wild West. Like you're kind of taking your own nightmarish delusions and saying, okay, let's project them up on the wall and let's see what we've got. And it's very complicated, you know. It's not the kind of thing that there's, like, easy answers to. <laughs> what has navigating the – I mean, when I got I got very I got very sick for a while there, Ben. I got – I had episodes of psychosis and it was no fun at all. And a, a big horrible realisation at the part was that everything that was happening was already inside my head. There was – all right. the information that I was reacting to was stuff that was already in there. And that was good because if you start believing it's from somewhere else, then that's a real fucking problem. Right. What have you learned about 
dealing with those things that might be in your subconscious that show up. What have you learned about navigating those, that, that uncomfortable information during ceremony that has been beneficial of you to, you know, just dealing with when the kids don't want to do something or, you know, when there's a no parking yeah. or, you know, yeah. when born for this bullshit doesn't stream, I'm sure it is and will, but, you know, it no, doesn't yeah, go not, to yeah, the top exactly. of the yeah. Spotify one, charts, exactly. you know. What, yeah, what are yeah. some lessons you've learned from doing these ceremonies that has given you value day to day? Well, it's again, I think it comes back to that like witnessing thing because one of the things that I've learned both in work with psychedelics and in show business in my career is trust yourself, but not completely. Because ultimately you're not completely trustworthy, right? Like look at your own history and realize like if you were in third person and someone went, should I trust this guy 100% everything he says, everything he says, you'd say, not that guy <laughs> about yourself, right? Because <laughs> it's like, we're not trustworthy totally. And yet we have to make decisions in life and we have to make them with courage and with heart and with the disclaimer that we might be wrong. It's an incredible dance. It's an incredible dance how to be brave in this world and be innovative and step into new spaces, but just be aware you might not be right. And I think that practice has been extraordinary for me to open myself up to all kinds of things, but with a grain of salt. You know what I mean? Like if you look at people who have gone deep, deep into work with the unconscious, whether it's like... um Alistair Crowley or Jung or artists like Jackson Pollock or, you know, people that have really like excavated in the depths, often they've ended up kind of going mad because they didn't keep one foot back in the possibility that it might not be real. And I think that's been like one of the biggest things that like how to surrender, like being on a stage, right? I mean, you, you have, as a performer, you have high peak sort of experiences quite often where like the country's waiting and what do you get? You're at the moment of the unveiling of this and you're asking something interesting. And, you know, these are like exciting moments, yeah. right? How to buy into them enough so that you're present and that you have stuff to give and you're there and you're not wasting it. But not to buy into it. I mean, I had an experience. I, I think The Masked Singer was a little bit different because maybe, no, it wasn't really. Like both on The Masked Singer and when I did The Voice when I was a, a mentor, yeah. you know, Joel Madden was the coach and I was the mentor. On both of those jobs, I found my sense of perspective about where this current task sat in the larger macro sense of my career, let alone the cosmos totally out the window. I found myself on The Voice giving standing ovations as if the music was not living in the overall chronology that included Elvis and Mozart. It was like you buy into 100%, you, you get deluded into that this reality is everything. You know what I mean? So I think the different types of training that we can do for ourselves where we learn how to show up but not totally lose ourselves are really useful. When it comes to creating a record that is is just you, I get that you know you're you're going to need 
some uh, feedback before it goes out to the world. When you're creating a record such as uh, the next one, which comes out shortly, you're working with other people who are on board. They're a part of it. When you're in that space, you're like, here's the song. I think it's excellent. And I think I think you, Money Mark, you're going to be the, you know, you're going to be great. And then when he goes, nah, this chord here, no, 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 needs, need, do, you, do you go, no, 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 that's my fucking chord, man. Or you're like, sure, I might not be right here. Where's the line? I'm really into, like, I think making things, like, on a community level, if you can't do everything yourself. Like, Prince just would play everything himself, oh, right? He's, he's or Kevin Parker time. probably plays just everything himself, right? Yeah. But for most of us, for the other 99% of artists um, where we need teams, I think it's almost all casting. So you get people who you trust and then you let them do their thing. I'm not a control freak in that aspect. Like if I if I think someone, if my gut and my heart tells me, God, I want Money Mark's energy on this song, I'm interested in what he comes back with. I don't want to tell him what to do exactly. And I think that's the fun of it. Now, I'm careful about taking people's opinions on. One of the things I learned from reading the Brian Eno memoir, he did a book called Like a Year with Swollen Appendices, it's really cool. He talks about he didn't like to play people music to hear their opinions. He played it for them to find out how he felt in the room playing it for them. He called it listening through their ears. And I do that a lot. Like I'll even do with ideas. Like last night I have this work thing I'm considering doing. And it's a little bit, it's one of those like, it's a flyer. It's like a bit of a like wild proposition. Yeah. And I brought it up at dinner last night with my wife and another couple who I really respect everyone because I wanted to hear how it felt coming out of my mouth saying, I'm thinking I'm going to do this. I wanted to see, did it feel good? It wasn't as much what they said. It was, did I feel embarrassed? Did I feel proud? Did I feel inspired? Like, you know, it's like there's ways that we can become mirrors for each other without it being, let me tell you what you're doing right and wrong. You know what I mean? That is... It's a fact, mate. We could. Brian Eno is. If if people don't know who Brian Eno is, like most of the, there's some records. I'd, I'm going to say nearly every record that sounds the way it does right now is because someone who produced it or listened to it or made it has heard something that Brian Eno has, has done. He is one of the yeah. most influential sonic people that exists. Um, in fact, yeah. Um, where is it up there somewhere? I've got a I've got a little deck that um I was given as a gift. It's so, oh, oblique strategies. Oh yeah, I've got that here. And it's amazing. It's fucking amazing. You read that shit, you're like, oh, my God. Like, this is why For Your Pleasure is the greatest, one of the greatest records ever, ever made of all time. It's so good. So good. 1973, you were doing that, Brian? Like, Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting about Brain Eno is also just the capacity that art and pop culture can have for serious thought. And I think Brian Eno or David Bowie are like, I always aspired to be in the tradition of like pop work that contains intelligence and it doesn't mean it's all good or all bad or, but, but like, it's actually, there's thoughts going on. There's thinking people doing thinking things. And I think we need that in pop culture. And it's wonderful. It sounds like your family's come home and that's (laughs) a lovely, oh, it's always a lovely moment. I love it when everyone comes home. It's so good. It's great. The dogs ran out. You can hear them come in. (laughs) What do you get out of, and I'm sure you've done some pretty wild stuff and this is your invitation to say the thing that everyone says, but 
what did you get out of? I'm assuming you were you were a step parent before you were a parent. Yes. What did you, and I was I was too. Um, G was yeah, ten. Yeah, yeah. G was ten when we when we met. Wow. What did you get out of that experience, the step parent experience? I mean, honestly, like I got a practice run. Oh, <laughs> that was kind of big because also my stepdaughter's um, dad was in the picture still, so I yeah. wasn't expected to become the replacement dad. Yeah, I got to kind of have the experience, but also the stakes were not as high. Yeah, I feel like now, you know, my stepdaughter now is turning twenty in a couple of weeks. Awesome. We, me, and I only got together when she was turning five. Yeah, wow. And I've gotten. A friend and a um, like Kate's mind, I really admired and like it, and I often like talk through things. You know, a, a trusted. It's what comes with intimacy. It's like a trusted set of mm. ears and sensibility, and you know, hopefully, I provide the same thing back. But it's different as kids grow up. Hopefully, if there's not too much drama, <laughs> which there always is going to be, but hopefully, you do have you feel like a community with them. You feel like yeah. they're your tribe. And you can lean on each other when you need to. As you mentioned earlier, you know, I'm I'm the incredibly selfish person who thought I was very generous. <laughs> and it, it wasn't until G showed up that I was like, oh my God, I, I don't matter. Nothing matters. Nothing that I do or want matters. It's a big deal. <laughs> and that was so lovely for me because I didn't have to make the call. You know, it was yeah. like, oh. I was relieved of it. Yeah. I didn't have to suddenly decide. It was like, I just, now it just makes sense. You know, I, I get it. I couldn't be more grateful for it. It's amazing. I don't want to keep you from from your, your family, mate. Thank you so much oh, for- well, it's good to chat. Oh, mate, it's so nice to speak about this kind of stuff with you. And I, yeah. I love in, engaging with you, Ben. And and thanks, you know, thanks for the music. I love it, you know, and I'm oh, not just thanks, saying that. Man. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really cool. Oh, I appreciate it. And thanks for still making it. Oh, man, I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I'll see you soon. That was Ben Lee. The amazing Ben Lee and what a human being. I really hope you got something out of that. I hope that you were able to hear how the curiosity and the idea of I just don't know has played such a role in his life and given him this incredible life and incredible career that he has. And it's certainly something that I, when I spoke to him, I'm like, I could probably do a bit more than that. I should probably stop thinking that I know everything. I think that's that's the thing that I might try and do because it's what what an extraordinary way to live your life. 20 albums is nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot of music. That's a lot of songwriting. And boy, man can write a hook. Ben's new album's coming out next year. It's called I'm Fun. But you could listen to his new single that we spoke about earlier, Born for This Bullshit. Just type Born for This Bullshit or type Ben Lee into your musical delivery service of choice, hopefully one that pays the artists, and enjoy. That's the final new show for 2021. I don't know if I'm going to be able to record check-ins on our quick break i might if i do great i'll speak to you on friday what's the date friday let me have a, have a squeeze here friday's the oh fuck friday's the the christmas eve maybe i don't know depends maybe but i have episodes coming out every monday over the next few weeks so if you haven't listened to older episodes of the show don't worry you'll be fed some of the greatest hits every every summer i, I go back to the team uh, andy and rachel and, and brie and i ask them what were your favorite shows from f- throughout the year and so you're you're getting the real best of you're getting the real bonkersly good really engaging really cutting through conversations that that we had here on the show in 2021 so if you haven't heard them it's a great chance to listen to them 
yeah, look after yourself. Try to do the best you can. Don't wait to live your life. Just try and live your life with where you are, with what you've got, and try to do the best. Because our circumstances are changing every hour, goodness me. So we'll just see what happens, I guess. But yeah, look after yourself. Try to take a couple of deep breaths over this next few days. Try to do a few box breaths or a bit of polyvagal breathing or take a moment, take five minutes to think about the colours of the flowers you can see when you go for a walk. Leave your phone behind. All that stuff really helps on deregulating and it gives you sorry, down-regulating, and it gives you space between, oh, that's annoying, and hey, fuck you! You know, it just gives you a bit more space to make those reactions different, particularly in heightened family travel pressure situations, which we're all experiencing over the next week or so. So I'll quit banging on. Big thanks to Daryl Misson, who cut this episode. Quite a legendary human. If you've read my book, you'll know who he is. Also to Andy Marr. Uh, Rachel Barrett, my EP, and the ruler and runner of my life, and a brief deal on research support and um, toe hider on the music. Thanks so much for listening. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 